The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. to work smarter and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASPNet classes remotely online at www.franklins.net and by Telerik RAD controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for ASPNet development online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who learned extreme programming from Yoda, Carl Franklin. With 500 names, I call my friends to play. Welcome. This is not the podcast you are looking for. This is not the podcast I'm looking for. He can go about his business. You can go about your business. Move along. Move along. <laughs> Silly bugger. Welcome to .NET Rocks. <laughs> I'm Carl, and we're listening here live. And, of course, you're not, but we are. And I'm in New London. Richard, you're out there. You are home in Vancouver. I am home, back in Vancouver. Very good. How was your week, sir? Oh, pretty crazy. I, uh, I've i had a bunch of uh, customers in town from various different countries, so we've been doing lots of meetings. And I managed to squeeze a user group talk in. I actually got to test run my tech ed session at a user group down at Vantug uh, this week, which was lots of fun. And I took questions until everybody was finished, which turned out to be three hours later. Ah. So it was a long night. So they were all questions about .NET Rocks, I take it. Uh, there was a bunch of them, but they're all <laughs> kinds of things, really. Okay. Well, it, that's cool. I actually had a pretty good week, too, uh, writing a lot of code. Didn't get too much email this week, but... Um, we did, I did find something that crossed my desk. What was it? Oh yeah, this is excellent. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I remember this from way back in, way back in the eighties. Way back. Actually, it might've been the nineties, but this was a, uh, a, a version of 50 ways to leave your lover that Al Pena and Mile DeForest wrote called 50 ways to hose your code. Have you ever seen this? No, no, I never have. Should I sing it or should I just speak it? <laughs> well, just give me a a sound bite. Here's a little bit. The problem's all inside your code, she said to me. Recursion is easy if you take it logically. 
I'm here to help you if you're struggling to learn C. There must be 50 ways to hose your code. <laughs> awesome. She said, it's really not my habit to include, and I hope my files won't be lost or misconstrued, but I'll recompile. At the risk of getting screwed, there must be 50 ways to hose your code. And then, of course, <laughs> you just blow up the stack, Jack. Make a bad call, Paul. Just hit the wrong key, Lee, and set your pointers free. Just mess up the bus, Gus. You don't need to recurse much. Just listen to me. And it Excellent. goes on and on. It's great. I should uh, put a link to that. Every once in a while, something comes along, tickles my funny bone. That was it. You know you, what you got to do is record an acoustic version of that with a guitar. I'll probably get sued if I do that. But yeah. Well, anyway. Some other things that are happening uh, this week, uh, of course, you know, Star Wars is on everybody's mind, and and I was, I, I just got to thinking about Star Wars and Joseph Campbell and George Lucas and software, and right after I had seen this, about four in the morning, I just started writing uh, this post entitled "Luke Skywalker is a Design Pattern." Yes, is, I read that with great pleasure. Well, it's kind of one of those tangential, you know, you couldn't possibly say these two things in the same paragraph and make them make sense, but it sort of worked out. So it's uh, at shrinkster.com slash 5ED if you're interested in that. And uh, I guess that's about all the pre-show ramble we have. Thank God, right? <laughs> Get on with it already. Come on. So I guess we'll just uh, we'll just introduce Brian. So Brian Randall is a friend of yours. Uh, I don't know him all that well, right? And yeah, no, definitely a friend of mine. And uh, and Ken Getz, we're all uh, all hung out together and spoke together in various different cities over the years. So he's uh, he's from MCW Tech. We, we've had a few of those people on uh, as of late, uh, in, including Ken Getz. But here we go. Brian A. Randall is a senior consultant with MCW Technologies, LLC, a Microsoft certified partner. Brian spends his time between teaching Microsoft.net-based technologies to developers for Developmentor and consulting with MCW Technologies, whose clients include Microsoft, American Honda, Dell, and others. Brian enjoys helping people get the most out of their software. He does this through training, consulting, speaking at events such as VS Live, uh, TechEd, and the PDC. In addition, Brian shares through the written word. He is the co-author of Effective Visual Basic and has written articles for MSDN Magazine and Microsoft. Reach Brian through his blog at sequeljunkies.com slash weblog slash Brian R or at www.mcwtech.com. Hey, Brian, how are you? I'm great. Boy, and I, somehow we have the bad bio, but that's okay. It's not horribly out of date. No, it's <laughs> pretty good. out of date. <laughs> it's pretty good. And, and, but it doesn't really talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, no, that's the problem. It's not even about the number one thing we're going to talk about. And what are we going to talk about? Well, we can talk about VB, a little team system, but I think the number one thing on people's minds is how the heck do I use this thing called virtual PC and do I want virtual server? Yeah. Well, and that's the thing I jumped all over because I'm traveling and speaking all the time as well, and, and virtual PC is absolutely a godsend for all these different versions of software, so... You know, I'm I'm waiting with bated breath here to get to some good tips and tricks from my buddy Brian on how to make it work better. So for anybody who has no idea what virtual PC is, let's start there. What is it? Okay, so, so let's cover virtual machine technology lets you run one or more additional operating systems on top of your core base operating system on your computer. 
So that's in generic terms what virtual machine technology is in this context, as opposed to the programmatic virtual machine a la Java or the CLR. Right. The idea is that we're hosting a secondary tertiary uh, operating system, which has been around for years. Mainframes have been doing it forever. Uh, it just is caught in fire in the PC Windows world recently because Microsoft acquired Kinetics Corporation. Kinetics has been a vendor that's been around for years, but mostly popular in the Macintosh arena, where they have an emulator that allows you to run a version of Windows on top of the Macintosh operating system. So it's just kind of, you know, just really caught on fire when Microsoft bought them. The reason Microsoft bought them is because it's just a great set of technology that's finally coming to its own because we have hardware that can actually run this kind of stuff in a desktop environment. Um, so virtual PC is the consumer product, and then they have, when I say consumer, the desktop interactive product, and then they have a corporate server-based product called virtual server, and we can talk about the pros and cons of why you'd use one versus the other. Um, but in a nutshell, it's about running more than one operating system, and it's particularly useful for help desk situations or environments where you need to run an old operating system, say Windows 95, 98, for testing. I mean, just fantastic technology. And as, as Richard was just saying, really great for people like him who often do presentations involving lots of different pieces of software, different server uh, products, different client configurations, maybe different versions of the .NET runtime or the CLR, different uh, versions of Visual Studio. And and so rather than, you know, taking a chance at screwing up with beta technology or, or, or something like that, you're, you're, the system that you use every day, you know, just make a little virtual PC. The thing I like about it is that you can start with a base image. Like, you, like I have this base XP, SP2 up to date with the service packs and all that in the, in the hot fixes, you know, with, with the sort of the core stuff that I use all the time, Office and whatever. And I use that just as a basis for, for other installations of things that I want to use. And that's what I like about it. No, it's, it's, it really is fantastic because, you know, for people to understand what happens is you install this extra OS just as you would normally, and it basically gets contained into one or more large files known as virtual hard drives. And so those files are naturally copyable and, you know, quote-unquote shareable, assuming you uh, stick to your, the legal requirements. And uh, there's also some techno technological issues you've got to be aware of when you're duplicating those virtual hard drives. The thing to remember, I think, at the end of the day before we go any further is that when you build a virtual machine, it's a real machine in the sense of it needs to be patched, needs to be maintained, and it's just as if you were able to clone your physical machine when you clone the virtual one, you have all the same issues and responsibilities, like duplicate SIDs on the network, for example. Yeah, that's a serious issue. And, of course, some funny things have happened with people running virtual PCs and not being aware of what's going on. I seem to recall some Microsoft guy taking down an entire hotel network because he had DHCP running on one of his virtual PCs, serving up IPs to everybody on the hotel network. Yeah, that was a... Uh... Heck yeah, at the Hyatt last year, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. These are problems you just don't think of normally. No, that's definitely an issue, especially when you're running entire networks. I did a talk on Team System yesterday in Denver for the local Microsoft office, and I had two physical laptops hosting at the same time six virtual machines, 400 virtual server on one and two that were uh, on virtual PC on the other machine. And Ouch. I had my own network the whole nine yards. Yeah. Ouch is right. Um are you limited in terms of what operating system you can run, or is it anything that will install on on the Intel platform? 
Okay, so these are actually the first thing to be aware of, that when we talk about virtual PC, and all the t tough stuff I'm going to talk about today, except when I make a comparison, is going to be related to the Windows version, not the version that runs on the Macintosh. Uh, in fact, let's this, this actually bring up one point about that. There's a difference between emulation and virtualization. The virtual PC product that runs on the Macintosh is emulating the x86 platform in software, right, because it's running on a completely different chipset, right? You know, what is it now, the uh, PowerPC still by Intel, or not by IBM? Yeah, right. So they have to completely duplicate the x86 architecture processor and all the peripherals. On Windows, virtual PC for Windows and virtual server, they do virtualization. Now, the big distinction there is that with virtualization, they're basically making a physical copy of the, or a, a virtual copy of the hardware. So whatever processor you're running on, that's what the virtual machine sees. Um, for example, if you run a P4, it sees a P4. You run a P3, it sees a P3. Um, that distinction means that you can get really good performance. Now, the flip side is all the other devices, like the video card, is actually emulated. They emulated S3 video card, and so you don't necessarily see the benefits of maybe your high-end graphics card in the virtual machine. Um, and so the difference is they get better performance and better overall x86 compatibility. All right. And you, what about uh, – yeah, let's talk about performance right now. So let's assume that you have a virtual PC session totally uh, full screen. And, okay. and in other words, you have, you have control. Let's say, you've, uh, let's say you've got a gig of RAM and you've put up the maximum you – know, assigned the maximum amount of RAM or the maximum amount of RAM you should have, which is about 700-something megs. Yeah, give or take. Uh, give or take. So, what kind of what kind of performance degradations are you going to find? Like, well, so, so here's the problem: is it's multiple things. Number one, the two things that make the biggest difference to one are the amount of RAM you have on the host operating system, and the the spindle speed of your hard drive. And if you have multiple hard drives, for example, I've done tests, just moderate tests, without running you know uh, diagnostics. Just the difference between a 5400 RPM drive and a 7200 RPM drive is noticeable. Okay, right. so that's the biggest thing you can do for performance is get yourself a fast, separate hard drive from your host operating system, and make sure you have gobs of RAM. And RAM. I mean, those are the those are the two things right away. Gobs. People make the big mistakes. They run stuff on five twelve megs of RAM on a forty two hundred RPM laptop drive. Yeah, and, and uh, what was I going to say? Uh, a RAID stripe will work too. Absolutely, anything that's going to give you better performance will work. Right. right. I mean, it's as far as the virtual hard drive is concerned, it's just a big file. So right. as long as virtual PC or virtual server can see it, it'll work fine. Are there any optimizations you can do uh, in terms of where to place that file or index it? Absolutely. Or it's just like a swap file. You want it on a separate spindle, hopefully a separate physical drive than your host operating system, number one. That's the number one thing. And then if the virtual PC has multiple drives, is partition them across multiple physical drives also. Yeah. The other thing is there's different types of virtual hard drives we probably should talk about. Okay. What most people do when they set up virtual PC is they take the defaults and they like it. It's the dynamic hard drive, which basically means inside the guest operating system sees it as a X gigabyte size drive, which is the, the max you can have is a 16 gig virtual hard drive inside. On the outside, though, it only takes as much space as you're actually using. So you start off with, say, installing Windows, and if it's Windows XP, for example, it takes about a gig and a half. So you, you're... Guest operating system thinks it has 16 gigs of total disk space with, say, you know, 14 and a half free, yeah. but you're only using a gig and a half on the host drive. And then as you use disk space, it slowly expands. The right. problem is that slow expansion is just like, correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, is when you have dynamically expanding databases. It's a benefit that has a performance penalty. 
But there's two things. One is it takes time to allocate disk space, and the other thing is it's fragmenting. Exactly. And so that's you know the, the, if you want the best performance is use fixed hard drives and pre-allocate them. And when you do that, you can actually see significant performance improvements. Some of it's subjective, but that is measurable over dynamic disk. The other thing is you've got to keep your host drive defragmented, and you've got to keep your virtual PC hard drives defragmented. Those are huge things that if you do on a regular basis, you'll have noticeable improvement right off the bat, besides buying better hardware. And more memory. More memory. Inside virtual PC, does it just look like you, you have more disk space available all the time? Yes. It looks, it looks what, whatever you set the maximum to be, which is in virtual PC, 16 gigabytes, if you even use 2 gig, you still think you have 14 gigs free. Well, what if you use 40 gigs? You can't. All right, so you can only have a 16-gig drive. Right now in virtual PC. I forget oh, what the maximum for oh, virtual okay. server drives are. All right. I thought when you, when you said it expanded, I thought you meant it would expand past 16 gigs. No, it only expands up to, up to the limit of the size when you create it. You specify how big you want the limit to be. Yeah, and the limit is 16. Okay. It's currently 16, and yeah. I'll have to, I forget what the virtual server number. The virtual server number is much bigger because they support virtual SCSI drives. The drives in virtual PC are virtual... Um, are IDE only. Okay, so tell us about virtual server. Okay, so virtual PC is designed for interactive applications like you know doing help desk, beta testing, interactive use. For example, it supports drag and drop from the um, desktop as a good as a good reason to use it, um, and it runs as an interactive process under the login user's account. Virtual server is designed for running um, old applications that don't run on modern Windows operating systems like Windows 2003. It's designed for consolidation of servers where you have low utilization and you want to consolidate hardware. Um, it's also good for doing test scenarios. Now, Virtual Server is a server product that thus runs as a Windows daemon. In addition, compared to Virtual PC, which can only utilize, is only using a single processor and is basically single-threaded for all intent purposes, Virtual Server supports multiple processors. Now, understand when I say multiple processors, your guest operating system always today sees a uniprocessor box. It only sees a single processor. However, Virtual Server will take advantage of multiple processors, and with the Enterprise Edition, up to 32 processors. Wow. So uh, very scalable. Now, both versions only allow the virtual machine guests to see up to about 3.6 gigabytes of RAM, regardless of the host availability of RAM. Only. Yeah, well, only. It's, well, my <laughs> laptop will have the max 2 gig, and my desktop has 4 gig, and my server does too, and I'm ready for more. You know, give me more. Yeah, more hey, RAM, I, I'd actually like to cut in here, and I don't, I don't usually ask anything during these shows, but that thing where you were just mentioning, the guest operating system having a single CPU, uh, whereas your actual hardware that you're running it on, you could do it on like a 32 processor system or whatever. Um, that seems like a, a really odd scenario. Do you end up with a situation where you could actually run code faster in the virtual server, like a single threaded application, faster than it would run on like a single CPU system? Like, you know, what I'm trying to understand is what's the advantage of running, you know, uh, five or, you know, sorry, four or 16 or whatever processors on your actual server um, if you're only seeing a single processor in virtual server? Well, that's a great question. So understand this. At the end of the day, you have the host operating system, mm -hmm. and then you have this program that is controlling the virtual machine, the controller. Think of it like the BIOS, the hardware of the real machine, okay? It has to transfer requests from the virtual machine guest operating system down to the real host operating system, which down translates to the real hardware, right? Mm. So it's kind of like SMP scheduling, how you don't instantly get you know, double performance if you add an extra processor. Yeah. 
by having multiple processors, more virtual machines have more CPU time. Whereas if you run three VMs under virtual PC, they have to share that same single main thread of virtual PC. So there's contention, right? Usually what happens is people set their foreground VPC to have the most uh, processing time. So it's very much like, think Win 16 almost, right? We're mm. in this very sh you know, shared environment. With virtual server and multiple processors, each virtual machine is acting more like a real independent machine as opposed to a bunch of shared machines running together on the same resource. So, so a big advantage would be in a situation or a scenario rather where you have, you know, you're running virtual server and you have, you know, Windows 95 box, a Windows NT 4.0 box or whatever running as guest operating systems. You have multiple guest operating systems running concurrently. Absolutely. That, that's exactly what it's for. For example, when I do my team system talk, I have a domain controller a data tier box, an app tier box, and a build server box, all a virtual server. And granted, I only have one processor, but virtual server multitasks better than virtual PC does for that situation, especially since they're not interactive. They're all just sitting there running as servers. Now, granted, on my quad box, right, it's even a much happier experience because basically each virtual machine, when I only run four, gets its own dedicated processor for all intended mm. purposes. I was just going to ask you, and you touched on it, what are some scenarios that you would want to use virtual server in? I mean, we're not talking about replacing the servers that run our websites and things like that. No, but you, you actually you could. Now, here's the, So let's talk about interesting scenarios for people, and let's talk about what you really generally yeah. do do. Right. Number one, you could use it in a sense that lots of ASPs out there or application hosting providers are starting to use virtual machine technology. There's competitors to Microsoft, but the point is they're using this technology for hosting environments. So people get to see their own website, web server, OS, everything's th their own, but it's not for physical hardware. Go to a lot of your sites. GoDaddy, for example, has this perfect scenario. You can be on a shared physical host, you can be on a shared host with a virtual server, or you can have your own dedicated box. Huh. Okay, so that is actually a real use. And if you have a low bandwidth website that you would be running with scripting and say MSDE or PHP, you know, and, and MySQL, that's a perfect scenario where you have this beefy server box running virtual server, gobs of RAM, multiple processors, and low utilization websites Life is good. Perfect scenario for that. Uh, corporate internet, it's a great way to do that. You can give different departments dedicated servers when they're not really physical servers. Um, definitely consolidation of low utilization servers is good. You have NT4 operating systems uh, that you want to get rid of, but you have applications that will not run or you can't migrate, so you want to get onto better, reliable hardware. Another good reason. So, so what, what about performance on the server? I mean... Uh, there's obviously a trade-off there, right? Well, there's always a trade-off, right? Virtualization sure. is not going to be as fast as physical hardware, bottom line. Right. And you've got, a, you've got failure issues. If that power supply on that machine kicks off, you're taking out multiple machines. Right. Absolutely. So that's why it has to, you want to run you know, server-grade hardware for virtual server production. So, so I guess you would say a more common use for virtual server is when you're doing something like, like you guys at Microsoft, like we do. We, we go out, we talk to people, we show them... Uh, you know, different scenarios that are, are, are testing, you know, where we want to test an application against different servers. Um, yep. You know, any, anything that would require lots of boxes uh, that you could simulate. And, you know, performance, okay, isn't going to be fantastic, but that's not the point. The it's point functionality. is functionality you know, and flexibility. I, uh, well, beta software is the, the thing that VPCs sing for, right? Yeah. It doesn't, you can throw sure. fire up any old weird build of anything, and you know it has no consequence at all. Just junk the VPC and start over. Now, now another thing, Brian, you mentioned some sort of uh, RAM requirements for server versus, um, versus virtual PC. What are they again? What are the limits again in virtual server, and are they any different? 
So, so the, that's, there's, there's two limits. And for everybody that's listening, that's, there's two things. When I say host, I'm talking about the physical box. When I say guest, we're seeing what the virtual machine sees. Cool. Virtual PC, the, get, the, the host and guest actually have the same limits. The host can only see up to 4 gigs of RAM and make about 3.6 gigs available to a virtual machine. The virtual machine has the maximum addressable RAM of about 3.6 gigs on right. virtual PC. Makes sense. Right. Virtual server, depending upon the version of Windows you're running, will address up to, I think it's 64 gigs of RAM today on the current shipping version. Wow. On the host. And the guests, though, are still limited to 3.6 gigs. Okay. I get it. So so you can have, a, you can use a total of 64 gigs of RAM, but each operating system host is only going to be allowed to see 3.6. Exactly. Each guest will only see 3.6. And they only see one processor, even though right. there are multiple processors. Exactly. And I guess for that behavior, it means that VPC automatically, when you run two instances of it, stays on separate processors. They don't try and share. Well, it's... Okay, understand, they, you, you cannot set... On virtual server, you cannot set processor affinity. You can't dedicate a processor to a virtual machine. Okay. Virtual machine scheduler does it very similar to SQL Server in the sense that they decide where things run. They're going to try and pick the most available server. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's. You know, the one thing I've always wished I could do with VPC is take an existing machine that's directly installed on a drive and copy it into a VPC so I could try it, some yeah. stuff to it. That would be great. <laughs> you, what you know great what I mean? Idea. Like, I want to. I want to practice the upgrade of an exchange server. So take the existing exchange server what as a it great is, idea, throw it in man. VPC, and run the... You can do that. You can totally do that. How? Okay, there's, it depends on how you want it. So let's, let's, before we go any further, I want to t- put out one little disclaimer here about when we talk about stuff. Okay. What you can do with this software and what's supported by Microsoft are two different things. So for those of you that are in corporate environments and might be thinking, this is great stuff, I'm going to get my IT shop to use this. Good point. I just want to put a couple things in context. Virtual PC is designed for client operating systems. Virtual server is designed for server operating systems as far as production support, okay? From a testing and development standpoint, Microsoft pretty much will support any Windows version in the contrasting operating systems. Microsoft, when they bought Virtual PC from Kinetics and the virtual server technology, decided that obviously they want to push Windows, so they had dropped support for everything but OS2 as a non-Windows operating system. However, at MMS a couple weeks ago, they announced that they're going to be using third parties to support Linux and other x86-based operating systems. So the list of operating systems that are supported is much smaller compared to what will run on virtual PC and virtual server, okay? So I want to get that out of the way as far as technologies. The one operating system, by the way, that I know runs like complete crap and just don't do it is Novell Network. The way Fedora Network operates just is not compatible with the way virtual PC and virtual server works, so I just don't even think about it. I've run Fedora Core 2, you know, version of Linux, just fine under VPC. No, and that's just it. They, they will run fine. Now, there's one other thing we should talk about, about these operating systems. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. What about, what about betas of Longhorn? Okay. That, that, that's I'm going to address that because I want to bring up what one of the little tricks that makes virtual PC and virtual server work really well okay. with Windows. All right, cool. Because the way they do virtualization, to get better performance, they have you install something called the Virtual Machine Additions. These Virtual Machines Additions are highly tuned to current versions of Windows, okay? In fact, you'll notice when you're installing, for example, Windows XP, SP2, that it can be dog slow until you put the additions in, and then all of a sudden it's like magic. Wow. Right. The additions are very sensitive. Well, the problem is they currently do not have any public version of the additions that are available for Longhorn. 
Uh, Longhorn is probably the most painful experience in a virtual PC you'll have next to NetWare. Okay. <laughs> Just say no. Buy yourself a second hard drive for your laptop or even a, a you know, shuttle-type drive for your desktop if you want to play with Longhorn and you don't have an extra physical machine. Yeah. Virtu- and the other thing is understand, Longhorn's hardware software requirements right now are really high even for a lot of people's desktops, let alone trying to shove it into a virtual machine and limit its RAM and its hard disk. Yeah. So just don't go there. It's just a bad thing right now. So friends don't let friends run Longhorn in VPC. <laughs> not until Microsoft releases additions, and then we'll see. But that'll be a while because Longhorn's not even into real beta yet, right? That's right. It's at that early adopter, you're a sick person if you want to play with this kind of thing. Get a hot swappable, removable uh, boot drive for that. Or you got a PC you really don't like anymore. <laughs> no, but no, no, you don't, no well, it should you don't be a big one. Because the problem is people will use my secondary old machine. Yeah, it's no, experience no. worse, too. Get a, yeah, well, get a I have a nice machine. high performance machine here. It keeps catching fire, so it's great for Longhorn. <laughs> <laughs> It'll just speed up the fire. That's all. That's it. development should definitely check out Telerik RAD RAD control suite the UI essentials for rapid ASP.net development online at www.telerik.com T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com their new sponsor and uh, we've taken their tools for a test drive here and we like what we see this indispensable collection of components cover the major aspects of most web applications from the CMS Backbone and the WYSIWYG Editor to Navigation, Content Rotation, and Charting. Telerik has just released version Q1 2005 of the RAD Control Suite, which features new major versions of their Tree View, Panel Bar, and Charting components. The company has been prominent for frequent releases, so you can expect something new every month. RAD Controls is not merely a collection of ordinary controls, but rather a value set of products, many of which are market leaders in their respective categories. They've received a number of industry awards and recognitions. Moreover, as of June 2004, a modified version of their flagship control, the HTML content editor called RAD Editor, has been made available by Microsoft as a replacement of the default HTML placeholder in Microsoft Content Management Server 2002. All the individual controls can also be purchased separately. If you only need navigation components, for example, you can opt in for the subset called RAD Navigation Suite. A subscription option is also available, which entitles you to new products and free updates for one year. So you should definitely check them out. Telerik RAD Control Suite Q1 2005 for ASP.NET at www.telerik.com.
we got to get back to the important part, right. which is how am I going to get this existing drive that's not VPC'd into a VPC? Yeah. There's two ways to do it, okay? And when I, actually three ways. And it depends on do you want the supported way or do you want the, the, the way Brian would do it or what are you looking for? You know I want how you would do it. <laughs> okay. You know I do. First of all, Microsoft has a supported way to do it, which is good if you want to take existing servers and move them to a virtual server. It's called the Virtual Server Migration Toolkit. It's a free download, and it's designed to, in particular to upgrade your Windows NT4 boxes from physical hardware into a virtual machine. Cool. Yes. Now, this is important because you, obviously, Richard, as the toy boy, know this. And I'm sure Carl and the rest of our listeners know this. You know, Windows has some certain hardware dependencies, right? Right. And if you think about how NT4 worked, right, it was very sensitive to the how it ran on as well as the peripherals, right? didn't support plug-and-play very well. You know, getting it to run a laptop was you know, somewhat of an art in the old era, right? It was awful is what it was. Exactly. So now you're going to throw it into this new box. It's not like XP, which just says, oh, there's new devices. I'll plug and play and fix it and make it work. They have to do some tuning, and they fix the how and make it work, especially if you're migrating off, say, a dual-proc old Pentium Pro box, right? They have to map the old uniprocessor how in. They do a lot of magic to make that work. That's the way you should do it if you're trying to do this for production servers to, you know, maybe do consolidation. Virtual Server Migration tool to Migration Toolkit, VSMT, for virtual server. Okay, that's good and fine for production. Now, you want to screw around like this. Okay, here's what you should do. Number one, make a, use true image, uh, drive image, whatever product you have for doing imaging, Ghost. Acronis, right. Back up your host machine first. Okay, right. do that first. Right. Because you're going to have to reuse that image later. Now, then, sysprep that operating system if it's not a domain controller. Okay? okay? Right. And when you do sysprep, there's different ways and levels of doing sysprep. The one way you're going to do sysprep here is you want to do the one where it tells it to look for hardware changes. Yes. Okay? If it's a version of the operating system that supports this. Then you image that one that you've sysprepped, and then you load a Chronos true image, have it image it onto your virtual hard drive. When you boot up the virtual hard drive, it'll discover hardware, and you're ready to go. No kidding. That's the most compatible safe way to do it without using VSMT. Then you got to restore the image on the original machine so it's back to what it was. Before right. the sysprep. That's so, so you're talking, you know, three, four hours to snap the image in the first place, another couple to restore it, plus the fiddle time in between. That's yeah, not bad. It's not that bad. In fact, you'll love this. I actually did it recently. I was doing some tests with virtual server with a fixed hard drive performance. So I actually tried the imaging there, and it worked great. Um, mm. In fact, it didn't take that long to do a restore in the virtual machine. Under Acronis, they were able to do a full restore of about a 6-gigabyte hard drive, and it took it only about uh, 12 minutes total. Nice. And definitely you want separate spindles for that. Yes, and um, this is something I'll be documenting in the book I'm going to be writing on this stuff, so that obviously this is stuff that people need to know. Does this book have um, a website, or what's the title of it? Uh, we're still working on the details. Right now, the best guess is by Monday I'll announce it on my blog as far as I'm going to do it online. Okay. Hopefully someone will actually do a dead, dead trees copy, but the bottom line is I get too many people asking me questions, and I need to share. Obviously, right. I just need to, it's better to help. And sure. a lot of this stuff needs, unfortunately, written out instructions. You can't just pick it up from a show like this, or even when I do a talk at a conference. Okay. So I'm probably thinking right now the Everyone's Guide to Virtual PC, if that title works. Sounds Neat. good. Well, uh, we have a few questions from the, uh, from the chat room. First okay. of all, uh, Rodrigo asks, how does VPC compare with VMware? Okay, so that's a great question. First of all, VMware is a great product. Uh, VMware was actually acquired by uh, EMC Corp, 
And they have a different approach. Microsoft thinks you should use the products appropriately. They're, it's not a panacea for all your development or software issues and hosting and operating systems. VMware takes the approach to virtualize everything. Um, so they have different approaches. In fact, they actually have a high insert product called ESX Serve that supports SMP, dual processor virtual machines. Hmm. Um, it's not cheap, by the way. We're talking the five-digit thousands range. Ouch. Now, VMware, though, so VMware, VMware Corporation of EMC has three products, VMware, GSX Server, and ESX Server. VMware is the moral equivalent of VPC. GSX Server is the moral equivalent to Virtual Server. Microsoft doesn't have an equivalent to ESX Server because Microsoft does not believe in virtualize everything. Okay? Okay. Now, which one's better? It's definitely subjective. One of the things that virtual, VMware 5.0 just came out, and by coming out later than Virtual PC, it's definitely leapfrogged in some areas. Um, overall, comparable at core features, but virtual, VMware, for example, supports USB devices, including uh, I.O. synchronous devices, whereas uh, Virtual PC does not support USB at all. That's probably the biggest one. Wait a minute. So, so, my vir- my, so anything that is plugged into a, a, a USB port isn't going to be accessible in Virtual PC? That is correct. The only thing that – well, so let's, let's, let's clarify that. Let's be very careful. There's, this is where people get confused about USB support and what that means. Hmm. First of all, USB support, it does support a USB mouse and keyboard on your host machine. That will work fine. The keyboard and mouse are translated just fine. Yeah, because they just appear as a keyboard and mouse. It's got nothing to do with USB anymore. Exactly. Now, where people run into an issue, for example, is if I have a USB hard drive and I access start a virtual PC – no, Virtual PC will not see that hard drive as a USB device. It can see it as a network device, and huh. it can even be hosted on the USB drive. But the guest operating system does not see anything plugged into a USB port. So, for example, common requests, smart card readers, scanners, uh, cameras, those devices are not accessible on the Virtual PC. Wow. VMware does have support for that, and thus, and it's 1-1 as far as I know. They, getting USB 2, I think, is a lot harder. But the point is, VMware can, Virtual PC can't. That's probably the hugest thing that people care about. Do you think that's going to change? Absolutely. Are you kidding? Microsoft is totally committed to virtualization. In fact, they made big announcements at MMS, including the fact that there's going to be VMware, VM, VM technology called Hypervision in the core operating system in Longhorn. Okay. Great. Wow. So, yeah, in fact, one of the scenarios that you can think of them doing, and like I said, I don't know if this is what they're going to do, but what I see them doing is actually running your surfing session in your browser inside a virtual machine. So if something goes wrong, you can actually just dump the entire session and not affect your host operating system. Now, you should also clarify about the mouse, because a lot of people have USB mice and keyboards. Right. The USB mice and keyboard work fine because those are translated through the keyboard and mouse driver. Of course. Okay. So they're just seen as regular you know, PS2 devices as far as your guest operating system is concerned. Every once in a while, I see people say, you know, I'm trying to do this in virtual PC, and it's not working, and then somebody comes back and says, yeah, I use VMware. And I, I don't know what, uh, you know, I, don't, I can't remember, of course, what they were, but, you know. Well, that's a big one right there. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of the day, for me, uh, to be, you know, I used, before Microsoft bought Kinetics, I was using VMware. I've been using VMware since 2.0. What pushed me into the VPC camp, to be honest, is I do work for Microsoft as a vendor. And, in fact, one of the things I do for them is I build virtual PCs. The SQL Server hands-on labs for Beta 2 and for TechEd are all, were all produced by MCW, and I built the virtual machines. Uh, the team system guys are going to have a virtual PC available for people to play with so they don't have to install that software. Um, I also built that. So it's kind of like 
I became an expert out of the fact that I was being paid to work with it. Yeah. Um, VMware is a great piece of technology, and if you don't have a preference over one or the other, and cost is not an issue, then you know you have to honestly give yourself evaluation. Microsoft, of course, will catch up. They always do, and they they've got lots sure. of things they want to do. But until the next release, VMware has got the edge in some areas for right. sure. You, you mentioned cost, so VMware is is over ten thousand dollars. No, 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 no. I said their server skew ESX server is. Oh, okay. Okay, uh, let's be so, very clear. Sure, okay. VMware, now, I don't know what the current pricing is, so let's let's talk retail. Uh, yeah. Last time I checked, retail, virtual PC from Microsoft was about 129 bucks. VMware was in the 250 range. Oh, okay. Now, I bet if we go to VMware's website while we're talking here, we'll find what the current SRP is. It's probably come down to compete with Microsoft. Yeah. Now, the server products, Microsoft server product is still priced better than GSX server and ESX server, considering, though, that there's different, like I said, levels of compatibility. ESX server is a much different product that Microsoft doesn't compete against. All right. Good enough. Uh, another question from Matt Trevers in the chat room. Do you have uh, to do anything fancy to use over 2 gigabytes for a virtual PC, much like SQL Server, maybe boot INI switches? Okay, so when you... When, when we talk about addressing extra RAM, the issue is, number one, you have to run an operating system that will see more than X amount of RAM. So we'll see more than 2 gigs of RAM. Number two, it's up to the applications you're running to do it. So, no, you don't have to do anything inside the virtual machine just to get the OS to work. You need to follow the requirements, though, of the OS in combination with, a cert, with an application to address the particular RAM, right? The switch most people are concerned about is the slash 3 GB switch. Right. Because you're not going to be seeing more than 4 gigs, so you won't need to worry about the AWE switch. So tell us about that. What well, is so that? the Flash 3, 3 G normally applications can only address about 2 gigs of RAM, and the yeah. operating system gets the rest. By doing the Flash 3G, is it Flash 3GB or 3 3GB, whatever the switch is. Yeah, 3GB. 3GB, the, the application can actually see another gigabyte of addressable RAM. So... The problem is the application has to know how to address that and use it, and SQL Server is one of the few applications that would do it. That said, I really think it's pretty foolhardy to try and run SQL Server in a virtual machine and address that much RAM because I just it, it doesn't seem like the, the proper use of the scenario. So in other words, I don't see a lot of applications that would run good in a virtual machine with that amount of RAM. Those are kind of applications that need real hardware. Yeah. Because I'm definitely not in the opinion of virtualize everything at this point. I right. think it's a great technology for lots of uses, but not... And, and again, you know, the biggest use is testing, compatibility testing, uh, you know, working and, and researching, you know, how things work together and testing out things before you actually go and commit them to big right. hardware. And on older applications like consolidation of NT4 servers is a great use or, you know, Win95 apps that don't run well. Those are great examples of doing it. Uh, but like I said, VMware and, and EMC, they disagree on that to some degree. By the way, the SRP on VM Workstation went down to 199 it looks like, right now. For the package box, 189 if you download it. So, And, and even GSX server has gone down, too. Dual processor for 1700 bucks. that's a steal for what it is. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, wait, that means that's the number of processors they'll address, though. That's right. The other difference. Microsoft's a virtual server product, there's two versions, standard and enterprise. The only difference between the two is that standard edition only uses four processors. Only. Virtual server will address the maximum available on the operating system. Right. Okay? Virtual or VMware uh, does per processor licensing. Uh, You've got to watch out for that. They, VMware, the bottom line is their ASX product, the only way you can get pricing, you have to go to them and spend time with them. It's a very high-end product. It's not something you're going to buy uh, and copy a share off the web. 
Um, Jeff, you had a question about old hardware you wanted to ask? Yeah, so um, so I was wondering, you were talking about performance a while ago, and there's a lot of talk about you know migrating old hardware. What yep. can we expect in terms of performance if you have something like, you know, you've got a single processor Pentium Pro 200 running NT4, and you go through the sysprep stuff, all, all the stuff that you explained from migrating it to a disk image, and you're running it on your monster dual proc Xeon in, in virtual server, um, you know, what's going to happen to the performance of that machine? Is it actually going to run, like, that much faster? Absolutely. It's going gonna, it's gonna to see it as a modern uh, processor. So, in fact, the flip side is you can actually run into incompatibilities with software that runs doesn't run well on faster processors. Oh, interesting. Because, I mean, one of the reasons I don't upgrade that old PC200 machine or P2200 machine is because I can't get it to run properly on a new motherboard. Yeah, so you might have problems. They, um, I forget the exact motherboard, but it's in the documentation they list. I think it's a uh, Intel 440 chip BX. Um, the documentation does list what type of motherboards they emulate as far as chipsets and everything. That is actually that's a good thing to bring up. There is a possibility that because of the way Microsoft virtualizes the processor in particular, that you might run into incompatibility. But that's why you can test, you know, make an image of it and try mm. the image before you commit to it and delete the and throw out the old server. Is there anything you can do to actually throttle down the performance not, of a system? Not right now, no. Mm. Um, right. it's, okay, so one thing you could try to do, but see, this, this won't change what the application sees, the speed of the processor. You can get a less CPU cycles. One of the things about virtual server compared to virtual PC is that virtual per server allows you to uh, give a certain ti- amount of uh, CPU um, performance based on, a, a, you know, 100%. So you can say this virtual PC only gets 10% of the cycles, this virtual machine gets 50%. Um, you could do that as one attempt, but I haven't, tr- I haven't run into any apps that had problems, so I haven't even tried that. Okay. Interesting. Uh, Rodrigo asks a very simple question. Can I get the VPC files burn on a DVD or whatever and carry it to a different place like a portable image? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Just you got to be aware of the legal implications of that. Ah, good point. So Please. let's address that to some degree. First of all, any operating system you install into virtual machine is just like a real machine and thus needs a license. Right. If you're running Virtual PC 2004 on Windows XP Professional, Microsoft has amended the license with the standard disclaimer that Brian Randall and MCW Technology are not a legal firm and are not providing legal <laughs> advice. Um, if you read the license agreement, um, and what I've seen it to say is this, that if you have a license copy, you're allowed to install a duplicate copy of Windows XP under your same license into virtual PC, and that is all legal. Beyond that, every virtual machine you create needs its own independent license, which means you shouldn't be giving copies of your VMs to friends and family because that right. is just like you duplicating your machine and giving it to them for free. Right. right. And the question was, you know, can I take it from home to office, office to home, whatever? You can do everything with, from the physical and the uh, perspective, not a problem. It all will work just fine. Hey, we got a question from Poland. From, from Robert. Hey, Poland. Yeah, from Robert in Poland. He says, why isn't it possible to run virtual PC inside another virtual PC session? Why would I want to do this? Well, I had a project which involved rewriting an old Linux kernel. Oh, my God. You're kidding me, man. That's weird. And whenever I would start that old Linux distribution, some kind of software on my new host machine, probably antivirus, messed up with my virtual hard drives. What I wanted to do was run a VPC session inside another clean XP session, which would resolve the problem. That's a great question. Wow. Um, I honestly, unfortunately, don't understand or know the technical reasons why they limit it. However, you can actually run virtual PC inside VMware if you're into pain and suffering. Okay. 
it's, it's, it's in that category of longhorn and network. So it's, I mean, it's an interesting solution. If he's just got to figure out the problem, then he could run a copy of VMware, put VPC inside of that, and it would work. It would suck, but it would work. Exactly. And this is in that area of, you know, I've been told this. I haven't had the time to waste and try because, you know, hearing that it was pain and suffering since I had no need to try like this uh, poor person in Poland, um, you know, I haven't tried it. That's I'm not on my high list of things to do. But it, Yeah, if you, you, I, you, you can put that right behind whacking your head on a wall, right? Yeah, and once in a while I even do that because that kind of helps me think clearly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, time. here's the big question. 64-bit virtual PC. What not kind available of, yet. What what kind of stuff can we expect to do with this? Well, the the biggest thing with, with, with doing 64-bit, obviously, is that we can have better performance, right, in theory, right, and yeah. more RAM addressable. Okay, the first thing that's coming to the horizon is Virtual Server 2005 SP1, will support running virtual server on a 64-bit operating system, 64-bit processor. The right. guess, however, will still be 32-bit. Right. The VMware, I saw some stuff related to x64, but since I have not played with it, I'm not an expert on their current setup. My, room, my understanding, though, is that if we look at requirements, I think you can run VMware 5 on a 64-bit host, with a 64-bit OS, but we'd have to check that to be sure. Now, the final thing to be aware of is that you could, of course, run Windows XP 32-bit on an Athlon 64-bit and not have any issues, right? It's the OS that's going to affect the installation use of the, the software. Virtual PC, until they come up with a new version, will not run on a 64-bit operating system. Won't run at all. Yeah. Will not run at all. Will not install. Interesting. How, how do you think – what do you think about the, the 64-bit platform? I mean, I have in my, you know, my more – optimistic moments i have these visions of running you know a, a machine that just has like you know 64 gigs of ram on it and you know we have like i have like 40 gigs dedicated to a virtual hard drive you know with a backup battery so it's like constantly running and i'm just like totally screaming i, I mean, want a laptop like that is that kind of stuff i mean are, are the boxes that we buy in the not too distant future going to be able to are you going to be able to get a 64 gig chip and put Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I mean, look at where we're at today, right? My my new Dell that came, I got four gigs of RAM. My laptops have two gigs of RAM. I have more RAM in my laptop than in my first three or four machines in disk space, right? SD 251s yeah. was my first hard drive I was able to buy myself that wasn't in a company. 40 gig or 40 megabytes, right? Right. But absolutely, it's just a matter of time, right? It's just a matter of time. Yeah. That's going to okay, be sweet, Okay, so just man. so you know, VMware does support 64-bit hosts today with Windows Server 2003 Service Pack 1 64-bit edition or experimentally supporting Windows XP 64-bit as a host. They do not support 64-bit guests at this point either. Okay. Uh, Noah asks, and Noah is from Phoenix, by the way. He asks, aside from running browsers within the virtual PC, did you see uh, any other future consumer uses for virtual PC? And as we developers in future create applications that run there, uh, run in their own virtual PC. So Microsoft has not has been very um, terse about their announcement. In other words, it's the big announcement was we're committed and blah blah blah. They're not announcing any details, so I don't have any inside info that I can share. That said, it's it's definitely a, an idea of virtualizing information and protecting things, I think, is going to be the big focus of virtualization. Right? One of the problems we have with old software and, and other things is often incompatibility where it causes us grief with our other software. Right. 
But I think virtualizing entire segments, for example, I'm running team system in a test environment, but you can see setting up your machine to a point that where, you know, just as you might have fast user switching at home, so, you know, Jimmy logs on to play things, and then Julie gets on later and does her stuff, to where you're actually virtualizing part of the way you work to a point of, okay, when I want to work on work work, I load this up. But when I want to work on my family photo album, I load this environment. Yeah. And so the host operating system at times, I think, will be relegated more to an overglorified how. I mean, that's why I look at .NET related to the operating yeah, system, too. Yeah, sure, sure. And so I think that's probably the big thing. In my, in my book, I'm writing about different scenarios, and one of the things I push today is start surfing in a VM. And, and just basically isolate your interactions with the Internet in this virtual machine. That way, if something really bad happens, you dump that. You don't have to dump all your hard work. Yeah. You're ultimately spyware-proof that way, right? Well, to some degree, remember, the, the one thing to be aware of is this is a machine that, if it's on your network, could infect other machines just like another machine does. So it's right. perfect, but at least is a much more isolated way of, of enjoying uh, the Internet, so to speak. Yeah, that's a, that's a great tip. Yeah, I, I agree, Interesting point that we've just reached a, point, a place in hardware development now where we have more horsepower than we need, so we can afford to waste some doing these kind of gross virtualizations rather than, you know, do all the sniggly bits of trying to fix all the issues around spyware. It's easier right. to just put it in a big can that you can flush on demand. Yeah. yeah. You know, in the, in the test scenarios, the other thing I use it for a lot is when I evaluate third-party components. And what I want to sure. do is I don't want to infect my development box because I never know what it's going to do to Visual Studio or, or any other component. So I have a base OS. I fire it up, log in, I install the components, play with them in that isolated environment, and then... I can add some of my code and play with it without affecting my work environment, which, you know, I have to get mission-critical stuff done, what I get paid to do. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, I could not function without this technology. I mean, I used to do this with multiple hard drives in my laptop. I carried a, an email drive and a, a teaching drive and a conference drive. Absolutely. And now we just do it in VPCs. Did you use the dual boot operating systems? No, I didn't even bother with that. I just had separate drives. They were all independent. With that, on one machine, I would have multiple operating sure, systems. Sure, yeah, I've done that plenty of times. And just virtually, yeah, multiple boots. But, the, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned here is you can configure the drive to journal to not add, so you can roll back to your original configuration. So you don't have to unroll your uh, demos after you've used them. Now, what just is this? shut the thing down and it goes back to before you started. Now, what is this again, Richard? I didn't, I didn't know about this feature. In, in VPC, you can configure VPC so that it keeps a journal of all your changes. And it just writes it as a separate file and operates through that. And then when you're done, just close the window. Close down VPC. Don't shut down. And it won't keep any of the changes. Okay, well, let's ah. clarify that. You have to adjust your settings to just close it and have it do that. It will ask you by default what you want to do. Do you want to merge the changes in the undo drive with the host drive, or do you just want to throw them away? Or do you want to save it and decide later what you want to do with the file? That's awesome. Um, if you just close the window and it's d destroying the undo drive, that means you've configured it to do that by default. Wow. I'm just saying this because most users, that's not the default they'd see, Richard. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've definitely, I've tuned my VPCs for demoing. So I, I have them in normal configuration, get everything installed just the way I want. So I know the demo's ready. Then I switch over to the undo mode and I know I can always go back to the beginning of the demo every time exactly the same. Yeah, and VMware Very supports cool. a similar technology. In fact, there's the third, the other thing related is what are called differencing drives, which is a really cool feature too. Now, understand undo drives and differencing drives are at the expense of performance, right? Because um, they're dynamic drives, and so you're constantly chewing disk space. The undo drive sits on top of your host OS, and then, as J Richard said perfectly, it's a journaling feature. Differencing drives basically have a parent-child relationship. So you get your base OS. Say you install Windows Server 2003. Okay, you've got that set up. 
But now you want to see how Service Pack 1 affects your applications. The problem is if you put it inside there, what are you going to do? And plus, maybe an undo drive isn't going to cut it because you want to be able to play with it for a while. What you do is you create a new differencing drive that's based on the first parent hard drive. And what happens is you then change Virtual PC or Virtual Server to point to the differencing drive, and when it boots up, basically the host drive is read-only. All your work affects that differencing drive. And you can actually build differencing drives on top of differencing drives or actually have multiple differencing drives pointing to the same host drive at the same time. It's amazing technology at the expense of performance. Hmm. Jeez. Oh, one caveat, if you modify the host drive, it screws up all the children naturally. Right. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say naturally. Hopefully someday they'll have a way to do merging, but that would be just some, some wicked cool thing to figure out. Yeah, it occurs to me that... Uh... You know, we talked about how to take an existing machine and get it into a VPC. Naturally, if you do all the changes and get it the way you want, now you want to get it back out again. But I suppose that same sysprep procedure would probably work. Same way to work. The one thing to be aware of the sysprep is you need to RTFM the documentation because there are certain niggling details such as the version of Windows you're using to sysprep as well as um, the licensing format. For example, if you're using off-the-shelf Windows XP, which has OS operating system activation, there's issues with that. Um, also, certain licenses only allow you to, to actually sysprep a certain number of times. So definitely understand how sysprep works before you run up and do it. But basically, definitely a physical to virtual and virtual back to physical should work just fine with all the modern versions of Windows. But this is all going to be in your book, right? Absolutely. So I'll read it there. Well, that's I hope. That's <laughs> the plan. So it's a matter of taking a lot of stuff I have in notes and just putting it down into verbal form and getting feedback from people on the Internet. It's really powerful IT type stuff to be able to go take an image of a machine, mess with it, and then put it back. Oh, again. absolutely, absolutely. And and you know we've all, we've been able to do this with ghosts and, and those such of things, but I found them slow and annoying, especially if you're going to do it over and over and over. That journal approach to things where I can just snap back to before I started and do it again. Yeah, it's it's a lot more compelling than uh, than doing it with ghosts. Yeah, I've got a few applications for that right now. As a matter of fact, well, you know, a big one I didn't mention is testing installation programs. All right, right sure. I, I, and upgrade routines. I did a thing from Microsoft called the MSD Deployment Toolkit, which actually is a setup bootstrapper for MSDE and your managed applications. What did I have to do all the time? I had to test on every version of Windows that Microsoft supports. So first of all, all those permutations, but the fact is I'd get my setup work and find a bug, why well, did test it again? So what did I do? I used Virtual PC, and that just, just saved my life. And I can see you keeping a little repertoire of one clean install of each OS sitting there. That's the that's sort of your core copy of each one, and then you bring it in, you make a copy of it, you mess with it for a while, then you throw it away. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's actually the one thing that makes virtual server a little more interesting for people who are doing this for a living like us, is that virtual server has a calm interface that you can program. In fact at TechEd this year in Orlando, I'm doing a talk on programming virtual server for developers and administrators. And through this COM interface, you can use Windows scripting, you can use uh, managed code. Uh, you can't actually use VBA because of the way uh, security works with COM. Uh, but you can use VB6 if you don't want to be able to debug in real time. That's cool. You can programmatically, basically build your base image, right? Have it set up with sysprep. And then every, once it's built, I can programmatically pull that sysprep image out, start it up, boot it up, configure it on the server all programmatically. It is the most amazing. It's a pure sex experience. I mean, it's just wonderful. <laughs> I think oh, I'm going to have to catch your session, Brian. It sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, it's, it, it's a, dude, it 
it is, it's amazing. It is so cool. And, you know, I've been working on different utilities to make it better. I know Microsoft has stuff they're doing internally for, like, the ASP.NET team. You can click on a console, and it'll go and say you pull this base image, set it up, generate it, and then you load your BVT test onto the test host. It runs. And then what do you do? Delete it. Done. Right. <laughs> it's, just, it's amazing. Yeah, this is a whole cool. other level of automated, isolated testing multiversion. It's just very cool Fabulous. what you can do there. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful, and that's, I'm looking forward to the talk. And just I've, as I've been playing with it, it's just amazing stuff. Well, I can't wait to see it. Hey, Brian, you know I ask all my guests at the end of the show, what's the coolest thing that you've downloaded lately? The coolest thing I've downloaded lately, uh, not not uh, the Revenge of the Sith, the Return no, of no, the no, Sith, no. or whatever it's called. <laughs> I make my living doing IP, so I don't uh, I don't engage in those activities. Thank you very much. Good for you, man. Um, the coolest thing I've downloaded lately that has probably changed my life would be Skype. Skype. I, I, I just – Skype is amazing. My wife and I, I – obviously, I travel for a living. I was taught for developmental for eight years. I obviously speak a lot. And I went to, uh, I went to France in, uh, to teach at Microsoft in uh, February. And I talked to her every night on Skype. In fact, we use MSN at the same time, the 6.x client, so we could see the video of each other. But then we use Skype for the voice. Both at the same time, oh, amazing. Just it just ch- definitely changed my life. I'd have to say Skype right now. Why, why Skype over say MSN audio or any of the other? MSN audio and six X sucked. Let's oh, be honest. What about all the other? <laughs> Don't I mean, hold back, man. This isn't a, this isn't necessarily new technology. I mean, there are a lot of clients that do this stuff. What what makes Skype so good? I just the the sound quality is freaking amazing. I'm in France. I'm in outside Paris. In some hotel in the middle of nowhere, I'm using, luckily, they had Wi-Fi because the hotel obviously was built before the dawn of time. Yeah. And I'm doing this across the planet, and it sounds like I'm on AT&T at the best connection I've ever had. I mean, it cool. was fantastic. Cool. I mean, now, this is one of those things, you know, I, when people think about, you know, there's, when there's competing products, why do you use X over Y or anything else? Sure. And the thing is, when you find something that's just that compelling out of the box, the user interface is well done, clean UI, it works, I mean... I just I have no need to compare right now until someone convinces me that it's going to change my life in a different way, and I don't see how it can because I'm getting great quality. They'd have to start charging me for it, and even then I'd consider still using it. <laughs> okay. Cool. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I like Skype. Um, you got to remember, though, not to not to be available for public chat because every once in a while I, I had this on, you know, and I'd, somebody would just chat me and start talking to me. I'd be like, do I know you, you know? Yeah, I- yeah, that's You're, definitely a little creepy. Definitely have to it's turn that It's like the off. old days of ICQ, right? right. <laughs> Hello, Richard. Hello. Right. Who are you? I'm watching you. All right. Well, listen, man, uh, you got any last-minute words of wisdom to uh, impart on uh, the listening minions? Um, just, you know, invest. If you haven't tried it, give it a try. Just buy real hardware. You know, you'll, you'll have the worst experience if you try to use it with anything less than a gigabyte of RAM and a 5400 RPM drive. But that's just, I mean, that's Brian's bare bones recommendations. Yeah. You know, it's just, if you don't do it for a living, then just don't even worry about it. But and if you, you do it for a living, you've got to get the right machine, and then you'll be a happy person. And you recommend four gigs of RAM on the base machine and two gigs for your virtual PC session? No, 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 no. Virtual machines, for example, I mean, if you, depending on what you're doing, half a gig of RAM is great for the guest. If yeah. you have, you know, a two gig machine, you can run three or four guests at the same time. Yeah. It just depends on what you're doing. For example, let's say a popular thing I know people are going to do, they want to play with Visual Studio 2005 Beta 2. Not Team System, just the, the regular copy. You can run, say you built a virtual machine guest that's running Windows XP Pro, 
you could play with Express, VB Express, C Sharp Express, with 256 megs for the guest OS, no problem. Okay, you'd have a good experience. Five, half a gig of RAM, you'd have a, probably a much better experience, and beyond that, it wouldn't matter. Full Visual Studio, you want probably half a gig. You're going to run full Yukon in Visual Studio, you want a gig of RAM, okay? Yeah. Now, you run run Team System, you want multiple physical machines with multiple virtual machines, and that gets into a, a nice big configuration. Huh. Okay. Yeah, it just depends what you I mean, Windows 95, heck, give it 128 megs of RAM, it'll be run sure. fine. Yeah, why not? Right, it just all depends on what the host, the guest operating system is that's going to demand the RAM and then what apps you're running. Okay, man. But more RAM is generally better, though. Well, uh, what can I say? Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Brian. It's been a great talk. Hey, thanks for it. having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Richard, for, uh, for finding him. <laughs> it's easy to find him. Just call up your friends and invite them on. That's what we're all about. All right, well, listen, on behalf of me and Jeff Maciel, and Sounder, and Richard Campbell, Brian, thanks a lot. And uh, to all your listeners, we'll see you later. Thanks, guys.